0: Welcome to the inaugural season of the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dittman, co-lead of Stoll Reeves Agribusiness, Food, Beverage, and Timber Industry Group. This season, we're interviewing respected industry leaders and discussing how they and their companies are embracing innovation and capitalizing on new opportunities to move their industries forward in an ever-changing world. Subscribe at Stoll.com, that's S-T-O-E-L.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Dittman. Today, I'm talking with Mary-Kate Bolin, the Director of Sustainability and ESG at Forest Investment Associates, about the role of environmental, social, and governance, aka ESG considerations, in timber and forest sectors. Welcome to the studio, Mary-Kate.
1: Thanks so much, Adam. It's great to be here with you and really pleased to be sharing with uh, the Deeply Rooted audience.
0: Mary-Kate, before we jump in, why don't you give our listeners a little sense about your background and then also um, what Forest Investment Associates does?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I've been working in the forestry investment space for around 13 or so years, but actually came to it from a a kind of unsuspecting pathway. I studied anthropology when I was in college um, and during that time went off to the Peruvian Amazon to try and count and track monkeys at an ecotourism lodge. I had deep ambitions of being the next Jane Goodall and counting monkeys in Peru as as close as I could get at the age of 20. And while I was there, I really fell in love with forests, first of all, I fell in love with the rainforest and everything that they had to offer. But I also saw firsthand how very important that market-based incentives for conservation and for maintaining forest resources and ecosystem services really, really were. So as I was graduating and looking for next steps, I started looking into all sorts of things going, who is trying to make these ecosystem services and payments for ecosystem services work so that we can um, get financial incentives aligned with better resource management, better forest management in ways that both help the environment and help people who are living around those forests and who use and depend on them for so many things. And with that, found myself coming into the world of carbon markets and forest carbon. And via that, came into forestry investment, because who better to engage in forest carbon management than folks who are investing in forests and trees, and whose entire job is to make those trees grow better, healthier, and faster over time. So that's how I got into forestry investment. Um, For about the past decade or so, I've been specifically looking at it from this ESG perspective. You already noted that stands for environmental, social, and governance perspectives, or factors that you really integrate into the way you work. I would just call that basically environmental and social responsibility, as well as good corporate governance. And my job within ESG has been to work within investment management businesses and help them have the policies, systems, and procedures that back up a really strong ESG foundation to what we do as investors in the forestry asset class. Increasingly, over the past couple of years, that has also moved more and more into the area of what I call impact investing as well, which might be like supercharged ESG where you're not only looking to make sure you don't do anything wrong and that you have good environmental and social responsibility, but that you're, you're actively pursuing goods and benefits through the way you invest.
0: Great, that's really helpful context. And you know, um, as as you know, we have listeners um, not only in the forest sector, but also in the agribusiness, um, the food and beverage sector. And you know, I think we you know we hear the words or the the, the acronym ESG a lot, right? Mm-hmm. For you. Whose job is a director of sustainability and ESG, right? This is your day job. This is what you do. Uh, you're fully immersed in the topic. However, I can imagine that some of our listeners have probably heard the term ESG used, but don't, you know, really kind of know what that entails or are familiar with kind of the parameters of of what an ESG agenda, you know, might include. So, for the benefit of our listeners, I'm hoping that you could start out today by sharing, just you know, at a, at a very high level you know, what we're talking about when we're talking about ESG and the an ESG agenda.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Adam. I will take a step back because I forgot to mention what my other three-letter acronym FIA does. So Forest Investment Associates, because that's the perspective that I can share with you from in my current role, but also absolutely so much of the ESG conversation is really translatable across forestry, ag, and natural resources, because all of those are really firmly in this real assets world where we're dealing with tangible Investments out in the world and very tangible environmental and social aspects. So, yeah, what are the parameters of ESG? You know, it seems sometimes that you could consider almost anything to fit under environmental, social, and especially when you include governance, which is a really important part of it, but often kind of overlooked. I mean, that basically comes back to any of the business responsibility you have to any of your stakeholders, whether that's in the environment as a stakeholder, if you will. If it's the people who are working for you, the people who live near investments, the sort of social and societal side, as well as big picture societal, because things we do at an individual forest or farm level can matter to others. People care about how we manage wildlife, for example, and habitat. And then the governance side comes right back to shareholder value. Um, good corporate governance is a, is a main driver and highly correlated with, with good investment performance and shareholder value. So, you know, these are important topics. ESG, you know, there are a real focused subset of things and categories that you might think of. So if we looked at environmental, for example, pollution is a a big one, Um, climate impact specifically and greenhouse gas emissions, but also things like water management, resource efficiency, all of those fit under that kind of E and environmental banner. Under social, um, when we think about things like resources, ag and forestry, there's a bunch of social interest in those because land is, is a motive and land is really important to people and communities. So you have factors like land tenure, which may not be as big of a consideration in, in developed markets. But when you think about emerging markets, customary land use and rights for Indigenous peoples and First Nations is a huge consideration. You also have the social factors like access to land for recreation, for amenity value, you know, even where there's strong private property rights. People don't like to see certain types of activities on hillsides, hilltops or along even the highway or the roads they're driving along. So people, again, this emotive aspect of land can can mean that there's social views about what even a private business or investor is doing. And then another important part under safety uh, or under social would be safety. So how, how is your supply chain integrating in safety? Are your workers and contractors working in a standard that's safe for them? And under corporate governance, You know, there's a real wide range there, everything from anti-corruption and bribery and just kind of core ethical business standards through to topics that are really rising interest today um, and a a much, much more uh, point of conversation like diversity, equity and inclusion. The questions there might be how diverse is your board? There's good evidence that more diverse boards lead to better business performance. Um, you know, are you doing things to be inclusive in the workplace? What are your practices internally for workers? And are they supporting that diversity and inclusion? So those are all um, sort of examples under ESG. If we turn to the why does it matter? The, the core of ESG has always been and really started from a foundation of risk, because this is a concept that came up and got popular popular through investment. And what investors care about, they care about returns first, but usually they care about risk and return or risk adjusted returns. And so there was this a movement that started around 2005 when ESG was coined and started to be used quite a lot around how do we make sure that we are identifying and talking about the ESG issues that might affect the value or performance of an investment. That's where it all came from. So it really was rooted in this, what environmental problems or risks might be out there, what social risks are out there, and what governance risks are out there. Let's consistently identify them so that we can understand how to price those risks mitigate them and manage them. That's really been the heart of it,
0: yeah. I mean, that's that's really interesting. And you know it makes you start to wonder, I mean, risk is there, and everybody wants to control risk. It makes sense that the investment community, like you said, kind of um maybe the the driver of kind of the um, the push for esG in the modern era. but i mean that that's a that's a voluntary decision, right? that that's the voluntary decision of the The uh, you know particular investor in wanting to look at those risks and and maybe even um, you know prioritize or or chase um, kind of aspirational goals beyond risk. Mm -hmm. So that's voluntary though in my mind. And so one question that comes up is you know what's the business case right for voluntary you know ESG implementation and what would you say to those who are kind of waiting for something regulatory to push them down these roads
1: yeah I, I first off I think it's interesting to consider it voluntary just because it's not yet maybe regulated um, I think there are real pushes to the way, to the reasons why we might pursue an ESG aligned pathway and why it's you know more than just the option to decide to kind of assess these issues because if you can better price risk you can make better investment decisions right so let's think about something like perhaps the risk of wildfire or environmental threats to a forest or to farmland. Now I could just buy a forest in a high wildfire risk area and not consider that wildfire risk. I doubt many folks are doing that today. Not everyone thinks of it as an ESG thing, but it is because that is environmental change that's being driven by a whole slew of factors, not the least of which is climate change. Um, And to not price in that risk, I think folks would agree is pretty silly, right? So even if you're voluntarily doing it, that's something you want to understand in due diligence and that you want to carry forward into asset management, right? So just to kind of push back a little bit on voluntary, however, picking up with, you know, why get ahead of regulation maybe? Well, there's a reason because you can, you know, understand the potential risks and threats to your business, price it better, anticipate it better and maybe make some internal investments to give yourself some better resilience to some of these risks or shocks. But also, there's a competitive edge here, right? So the writing is on the wall about a few things. I think we live on a a planet that currently has finite resources, finite size, a rising population, rising consumption, and really dramatically changing ecosystem services and functions like our climate, our water flows, all of those things. Now, the changes those pose are going to hit different forests, farms, and resources in different ways at different times. But they will come, and especially if we don't start changing how we behave as businesses, right? So, if we anticipate that regulation or some severe shock to the system is going to happen, I really do believe that those companies who are out there attempting, experimenting, trialing with ESG initiatives are gonna be ahead of the game and how to adapt. They're also gonna be more likely to find an innovative solution. And if and when that regulation comes, I think they're gonna find it's easier to comply. I feel this way about investor uh, requests or requirements, something that might uh, sneak into what we call our side letters and like a fund or an investment agreement. I always wanna be ahead of those things, right? Because when that happens and an investor says to us as an investment manager, thou shalt thou shalt have this compliance obligation you want to say absolutely we already do that not oh gosh how are we going to figure out how to comply with that so we can sign on the line here i think it's the same way when it comes to regulation at the the sort of company level or the asset level you want to be able to go yep good we're doing that can prove it it's auditable fantastic rather than quick let's scramble to make sure we no longer Mismanaged that resource just because they told us we couldn't do it anymore.
0: <laughs> right, right. So to to segue a little bit and just think about um, how ESG factors kind of impact the the forest sector particularly, because um, mm-hmm. again, this is this is where you live, right? Um, yeah. I think a lot of folks who are forest owners, forest investors out there, um, say, well, um, you know, Mary, they might say, Mary Kate. Uh, we already um, practice sustainable forestry, right? Um, we have FSC or SFI or American Tree Farm certifications or whatever uh, on our timberlands. Um, is that the same thing as ESG? And you know, I've recently heard you say uh, in a different context um, that there's kind of a spectrum uh, that, that exists. And I'm, I'm wondering if you'd share a little bit with our listeners about kind of where you think um, sustainable forestry fits in the overall kind of ESG picture.
1: Yeah, that's a great question and one where you could probably get 10 different answers from 10 ESG people, even ESG and forestry people. So to me, sustainable forestry, um, you know, as a concept, a it's been around for a very long time, but in a serious way for around about 30 years or so, um, since the early to mid 90s when forest certification really started to emerge, which gave us a way to say, Here's an agreed set of criteria by which forest management can be assessed and audited to confirm that basically, you know, you are not doing any environmental harm and not doing social harm. And that you have management systems to identify those potential risks or downsides and to manage against those things happening. Super important. I'm a huge believer and big fan of forest certification systems that I would call, you know, kind of basic modern sustainable forestry. There was sustainable forestry before that, which foresters have been doing forever, which has been focused on how do we make sure that this forest continues to be healthy and productive over the long term? And that is something as core as making sure that we're managing on a time scale and an intensity that does not leave there less wood to harvest in the future than there is today, basically, right? And or that that forest continues to function and be healthy in the future. That's kind of big picture sustainable forestry that has been around by forest managers, you know, back to the days of Caesar and whatnot. Right. But right. in the past 30 years, this kind of certification range of sustainable forestry, I would call that almost the starting place, the yardstick for kind of ESG and forestry today. Most investors are, are starting to ask more sophisticated questions around forest certification or starting to require it. It's Definitely not hundred percent universal yet, but I think, you know, year on year, we're seeing more investors expecting and wanting to see their portfolios certified. It just gives them that extra assurance around the good forest management that's happening. So if you go to all the trouble of managing a forest well, making sure that you're doing right by wildlife, water quality, local communities, kind of why wouldn't you get the the tick of approval um, that helps you prove that out?
0: Yeah. Well, I appreciate the the perspective on that. And and. Um, I, I would just if I can add lib a little bit uh, mm. further on that in, in in this um this spectrum that you've been describing, um, so I think I have a good sense of where kind of sustainable forestry and um, certification fit. I've also heard you in in other contexts describe um kind of impact forestry. Would you mind sharing a few thoughts on kind of what that is and how that might be different?
1: Yeah, absolutely. so, we've kind of placed sustainable forestry in that realm of, of ensuring forest resources are there going forward and doing no net harm to other resources or uh, groups or people, right? Now, what happens when we start to think about how do we manage forests in a way that improve outcomes for the environment or for society? That's where impact forestry or impact investing in forestry come in. And I would say that is where there is an intentional plan that the way you manage a forest or the way you make an investment into a forest, land, or other, any other investment, especially real assets, but we are targeting a positive environmental outcome, particularly one that is better than business as usual, is an impact investment. Sometimes that involves an additional financial return. Sometimes there might be a trade off, or sometimes it's neutral. That sort of doesn't matter. And I want to mention that, Adam, because sometimes folks can get wrapped up in thinking that impact investing is this thing that just like philanthropy does and that it's not something that's commercial. Um, But there's a whole a whole body of evidence building right now around the many types of investments, particularly in real assets and land use and forestry that you can do that align uh, financial outcomes for investors together with good environmental outcomes or social outcomes. I might pause and and turn to a couple examples of what they look like, so that this is something you know we can think about and practice.
0: Yeah, I would love that, please please share.. Yeah.
1: So um, a really uh, popular one right now is to think about what we call nature-based climate solutions, nature-based solutions or natural climate solutions. Um, there's a lot of rising interest in this because um, as the world is trying to decarbonize, we also know that we need to take tremendous amounts of carbon that's already in the atmosphere back out. <laughs> Uh, Trees are the natural answer for that. Literally, they've been doing it forever. And um, when you scale that technology of a tree removing carbon from the atmosphere, you get a forest. So that's what we can manage. Now, just by knowing that forest through their growth mechanism, how does a tree grow? It takes in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Photosynthesis helps it along. It locks that carbon into its biomass as it grows. That's doing us a huge favor from a climate perspective, right? Now, that's just what happens in any managed forest. But what if you started trying to manage your forest for additional carbon sequestration? So you said, I want to grow this forest to be a bit bigger, a bit older, a bit larger before I start harvesting those trees, because that means that each tree has more carbon in its biomass. It's had a greater impact on removing carbon from the atmosphere. Also, then when I harvest that tree, that carbon stays stored in the tree. And it transfers into the harvested wood products that go into the world around us. It's in the buildings that we live and work in. It's in the desks that we're working at within those buildings. It's on, you know, the paper napkins, all of those things, they're storing carbon. There's a difference though, between, you know, the, the lumber and structural timber in a building and that carbon in a napkin. So if I think about how long the carbon is going to be kept out of the atmosphere, much, much more in my lumber than in my paper. So that shifts back to what type of product am I selling from my forest? So when you sell pulpwood, it's going into these shorter lived products that still have an important role. I mean, much better uh, than using a product made out of fossil fuels. So if we're choosing paper over plastic or something like that, for example, paper still aligned with a low carbon economy. But if I'm producing more things that go into saw logs that make furniture and cabinets and lumber, that's going to keep that carbon stored for a long time. So we're now at a point where we see investors thinking very carefully about if I want to have a a climate minded timberland investment strategy that still makes money from growing trees and selling trees, but also has positive climate impact. What would that look like? Would I buy a different forest? Would I manage it a bit differently? Would I sell it for different products? And those become super interesting questions and a great example of where you can have an impact investment in an existing asset class with known financial parameters, known risk parameters, all of that.
0: Now that's fantastic. It makes you want to go out and build uh, all of our buildings with structural wood products.
1: Totally, and there's actually another uh, exciting element to that um, that is, is starting to take off. And I think where you're based in Portland, there's a couple good examples. We talk about what's called mass timber, which is where you're building uh, larger buildings can be made with these engineered wood products that basically can glue together and make very, very strong, large pieces of structural timber to build enormous buildings that you never would have thought you could build so many, you know, 10, 20, 30 plus, much larger even buildings entirely out of wood. Now, that is not only locking up a bunch of carbon for the long term in that building, but it also has what we call the substitution effect, which is a really important climate concept where that building, by choosing to build from wood, you're actually displacing steel and cement building, most likely. And steel and cement are what we call high, high carbon embodied materials. It takes a lot of greenhouse gas emissions to make them. So if I want to build a skyscraper or a multi-story building with steel and concrete, I've got to emit a whole bunch of carbon to build that frame if I want to build it with wood, I'm going to be buying this mass timber, which is storing and locking carbon in for the long term, displacing the emissions that would have been there if I built with steel or concrete. And I know that it's come from a forest that initially removed that carbon from the atmosphere in the first place. So there's a climate impact cycle there. Important to note that forest has to be replanted. <laughs> that keeps it as a continuous loop. So just to, to kind of recap, i there's a few S's to keep in mind if you want to think about forest and climate. Sequestration, the trees grow, they bring in the carbon from the atmosphere. Storage, they store it both in their living biomass, but also in wood products and substitution. What happens when wood products get used in new and innovative ways and displace things that used to have greenhouse gas emissions instead of this kind of removal power?
0: I like that. That's really easy to remember. <laughs> three three S's. Okay, Mary-Kate, you know let's explore some of the top priorities on ESG agendas. i think I think we've talked about a number of them. I mean the movement toward net zero emissions. Um, I don't know if we've talked as much about biodiversity management, and I know that um, you know that's a topic that that um, is kind of important to this area and important to mm-hmm. what you do. So I'd like to hear some of your thoughts, you know on some of those um, kind of those top priorities uh, sure. if you can share some thoughts.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and let's start with biodiversity. But I'd love to come back also to make sure we touch on water and people. There are the other sort of key things in my mind about what forests can do for the the global sustainable development agenda. So, biodiversity. Um, first off, if it's a term people aren't familiar with, it's funny. I feel like you can't define biodiversity without saying biodiversity. But biodiversity is basically the concept of all the biological diversity that exists across all the species of everything on the planet. That includes plants and animals, microorganisms, all of that is biodiversity. For shorthand, you might also just consider the concept of nature and what that means. And I would say both biodiversity and nature are increasingly common words mentioned in investment conferences and the financial world today. Like the uh, the uptick, if we checked on Google, of how much those words come paired with finance over the past one to two years would be you know, a gazillion fold compared to a couple years ago.
0: Right. So
1: right. why do we care about biodiversity within forests, land use, ag, resources? We need biodiversity for the planet to have functioning ecosystems. There's all the kinds of organisms that live in soil and make it rich, that make stuff grow. There are the interactions between different plants um, and among plants and animals, all of that. And it's just really the concept of how are we managing biodiversity in a landscape. Now managed forests Um, themselves can be very good homes for biodiversity. We think about, you know, the Pacific Northwest where we have diverse structures of forests that have a bundle of different species living within them. But also if we think about something like an intensively or actively managed plantation asset as a monoculture, what good is that for biodiversity? It's still quite a lot of good. The reason for that is because forests are part of a landscape, right? And so one thing the world needs to do is produce more wood. Um, We've got that rising population we mentioned before, rising consumption. That means we need pretty much more of everything, but especially more of wood and renewable resources because we're trying to get on this glide path to this low carbon or net zero economy. That means we got to keep displacing fossil fuels and keep making more stuff out of things we grow in renewable resources, right? So if we're thinking about how do we produce more renewable resources on a finite planet, that, to me, is imperative to all of us who are involved in any sort of land use, to say production area needs to be as productive as possible so that we can continue to spare and protect areas that have high conservation values, that house biodiversity, our sensitive ecosystems, those types of things. So, you know, I'm pretty confident to say, you know, almost every single monoculture plantation in the world you go to, there's going to be a piece of the landscape it's in, which is managed for conservation and protection that might be that there's a stream or a river going through that plantation and you'll find that there are riparian buffer zones that make sure that aquatic habitat can can uh, be conserved and preserved and that's also an important perhaps corridor for wildlife to move through these landscapes so the world isn't you know black and white right we're a little bit of a mosaic puzzle of different types of land use we've got farms forests communities all these things together on this finite planet if we can allocate production areas to being really productive and focus on conserving and promoting biodiversity in other areas, you know, that's a real win-win. So I think that's something we see within sustainable forestry. We see it as part of forest certification standards. And there's opportunities for land managers to think about what are the biodiversity values that best align with their objectives and how can you find win wins So an example I might give here as a as a forestry investor, we might say, we know that there is a a bird of prey in an area that is threatened. Um, And that bird of prey, we want to understand how does it use the forest landscape and how might our civic culture or our harvesting activities impact upon that. So to me, a really wise um, ESG project would be to find a local university or research agency, um, NGO that wants to look in these topics and say, Hey, come onto our land, help us find the bird of prey, help us monitor their activities, understand what they're doing, so that we can then have really data-driven and science-based rule sets and ways to show that our management is not harming them and hopefully promoting them by leaving the right, you know, amounts of set asides around nests, by controlling activities in certain areas. And I would say, you know, there's probably some older school forest managers who might be going, I think she's just talking about regulation and what they make us do. But by getting ahead of it, as we talked about before, if you have an ESG initiative around this thing that you think might be a risk or might be of interest to one of your stakeholders, you can say, well, actually, you know, we know because we've been observing and working with this trusted third party that when we do X, there's no negative impact. So we can continue to do X. But, gee, this other activity, you know, we really do need to leave these quiet months around nesting. That's important. So those yeah. types of things, you know, unless you prioritize your ESG activities in ways that you should also hopefully find operational wins for yourself and know how to manage your forest more efficiently within potential either regulatory constraints or voluntary constraints.
0: Okay, so Mary Kate, um, you know th- that's fantastically um, useful to think about. So you mentioned you mentioned water, and water is a is a topic, of course, that it, it goes beyond forestry, right? I mean, our, our ag um, investors and ag producer clients, right? They're always worried about water. That's the existential threat for them. So, why don't you tell us a little bit more about how water fits into the overall picture?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think this is where forests and, and farmland have a, a nice synergy because it has been more obvious. For business and investors and ag for a while now that water is something we need to get our heads around. We need to be smart about understanding its availability and how we manage it and what our impacts are on it. On the forestry side, something I find really interesting is is the forest industry has been clued into the role of forests for watershed management for a very long time. I would say water's still not really hit forestry from an ESG or impact investing side yet. But when you talk to people in the forest sector and folks that go in and out of the forest about what are the real environmental benefits of forestry, they go straight to water. Um, That's because forests are a really important part of the way our ecosystems work to ensure the, you know, delivery and acquisition and maintenance of water stores and clean water. So forests, through their, you know, mere existence, they capture quite a lot of water, filter that into subsoil and sometimes into ground aquifers, that's a really natural system that we need to ensure is maintained. So the way we manage forests to not disrupt that is really important. Thinking about things like not compacting the soil, um, but also thinking about the way that water moves through on the surface of forest is super important. So the streams and rivers that go through forests, which are really plentiful when you get out there into a forestry asset, we need to do things like think about where do we cross rivers, How do we maintain streamside uh, buffers and management zones? How are we, uh, the forest management practices that we apply, potentially going to have a negative impact on the aquatic life or quality of those um, streams and rivers? And in the Pacific Northwest, this is really cute, but it happens everywhere. But because of how much we like to eat our salmon, it's a real clear one. Our salmon supply needs good forest management. And if folks want to keep eating salmon, we need good forest management. Um, And folks don't often think about that. But, you know, the salmon that ends up on our dinner plate is going through so much industrial forest land, start to see why good practices that don't pollute water and that help maintain shade over, over rivers, which is really important because that helps regulate the temperature of the water becomes important. The last thing I note just with water, it's one that folks don't think about or talk about quite as much, but forests also play a really important role in local water cycles and how much it rains in certain areas, just because the interplay and existence of forests and what they're doing with the local climate. And that's an increasingly important thing as we're seeing more fluctuations and volatility in climate. Forests that are helping stabilize and regulate that local weather cycle is really, really important can also help you be more resilient to storms and significant events. So, um, you know, we've seen it this year with the hurricanes that have moved inland over the Gulf. Um, You know, some of what we thought could have been the worst with Ida came in through a natural system at the most part, hitting at marshes, which are naturally designed to kind of absorb some of that impact. Forests are the same. They're absorbing that impact and play a really important local role. So that's just to say, you know, the clean water that comes out of our faucets, that is the home for the aquatic life that ends up on our plates. This all depends on forest too.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, you sold me at salmon. <laughs> <Not quite laughs> doesn't like to give good it.
1: good wild salmon, right?
0: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, not quite ready to give that up. So, um, switching gears then to transition a little bit, you know, in forestry, I think there's a lot of um, buzz around carbon offset projects, and you know, what roles do foreign, uh, forest carbon offset projects play? Um, which is entirely fair. I mean, given that um, you know we have you know a regulated market we have a voluntary market this is kind of a natural thing that's kind of evolved in terms of you know how can forestry you know intersect with some of these broader questions but you know this is this is again this is your day job how do we take the conversation beyond uh, forest carbon offset projects what what's the larger role in kind of global um you know net zero emissions and in, in decarbonization
1: yeah i really appreciate that question this is something that that's near and dear to to my heart as a human and to what I hope to achieve as a, a person with a career. So the whole reason that forest carbon offsets became a thing was because of how important forests are in the global climate cycle and the global carbon cycle. Um, there is a natural carbon cycle that has always existed for what we might call biogenic carbon or carbon that comes from living things where forests grow, they absorb it, they put it into biomass. Before we started harvesting forests, An old forest starts to have some wood that decays, falls down, decays, goes into the soil. Many, many years later, we get a fossil fuel. And when those fossil fuels are burned or when the forest is is decaying, it releases carbon back into the atmosphere that eventually another plant absorbs. That is the natural carbon cycle. Now, the way that we manage forests, as we talked about before, can influence that carbon cycle. Um, And you can influence how much carbon is stored in forests. Now, forest carbon offsets were a way to harness some of this power of forests and nature as a climate solution because economic incentives were not necessarily aligned with getting more carbon into forests and wood products. Um, you know, economic incentives were aligned with selling more wood products or clearing more land to do other activities, right? So forest carbon offsets were originally designed to kind of correct for that problem and when they're used right, they're a way to engage the forest sector and land use in part of the climate solution. I want to be clear, I don't think forest carbon offsets or any offset should ever be used to displace what we might call direct emissions reductions or changing behavior where there are current emissions, right? We know that the world needs to lessen emissions. We need to dramatically change the way we produce things and live, right? Um, and that shouldn't be scary to say dramatically, because there are totally viable ways to do this that aren't going to make you or me any less comfortable in our day-to-day lives. We're still going to have a prosperous life. It's just going to be a low carbon life. Now that's happening, um, that emissions reduction kind of glide path down, right? Where every good we produce should have lower carbon intensity year on year. But we know from the science that even if we stopped emitting all greenhouse gases today, we're going to overshoot our climate target. That's because there's already so much in the atmosphere. We have to take greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is the prime one for that. There's two ways to do it. You can pull it out with plants, like all plants and trees, or you can pull it out with what we call direct air capture and technology. That's still pretty expensive. Folks are working really hard to make it scaled and cheaper, and that's super important. But nature is the option we've got right now. So when we think beyond carbon offsets, to how do we get as much potential out of forest ag and land use to keep pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and, and you know, take more out of the atmosphere than you put back each year through whatever your business processes are. This is where um, the opportunity for full climate impact reporting or greenhouse gas inventories is really important. So folks would be familiar with the concept of a carbon footprint. You might think about what's your carbon footprint, a footprint of your life, of your plane travel, now, if you think maybe that plane, like, you know, if I fly X miles, I got this carbon footprint, I can offset it for a couple of bucks. Well, what about the airline company that's doing that? Their business is emitting carbon as it as it goes along, right? So they have a carbon footprint. They report that publicly in their annual report every year. Pretty much every major airline will be doing this because they are listed on stock exchanges <laughs> And their investors require them to do this so that they can see this. And this falls into their ESG data. And they have what they call their emissions report or GHG inventory, greenhouse gas inventory. Those inventories to date have always been based only on emissions. We want to know how much bad is that company doing? But we're at a point that folks are going, hang on, what about how much good companies are doing? Sometimes that has been through companies, you know, trying to offset that, you know, mitigate their footprint by offsetting and say they're net zero or carbon neutral, you might hear. But there's also an opportunity for businesses like agriculture and forestry, if you have a greater carbon removal, more coming from the atmosphere than going back, why shouldn't you get to report that in a greenhouse gas inventory, right? So my trees are growing more than they're being cut and turned into other products. There's more carbon in the forest. And there's still carbon stored in those wood products I'm selling. I wanna talk about that. So, there's an initiative underway right now through what's called the Greenhouse Gas Protocol, which is basically the dominant rule set that all those public companies are using to report their carbon footprints and non public companies, bundle of companies. This is the dominant framework to add removals to inventories and not just emissions. And this is super exciting because it means that we can have forest carbon counted in a greenhouse gas inventory. We can talk about the value of the wood product storage in an inventory, and we can talk about soil carbon in agriculture in this inventory. And really starting to describe that will show investors and the public these businesses are doing good through their business as usual, not just doing less harm. And so, if we think about where capital is flowing with ESG and impact investing, I think that will lead to over time more capital going to those who are better at having more carbon removals, not just those who are doing a better job at having fewer emissions. So it's kind of a big picture thing, but it's like, why have we not been reporting on the good? So get the good <laughs> in there. And, and that, I think, aligns. It lets people see what is the role of the land sector, basically, in getting right. us to one and a half degrees, which is the ultimate goal of the Paris Agreement, is to limit global warming to two degrees with ambitions of one and a half degree limit, Right. Right. So we're not going to get there if we don't think about land.
0: Yeah. Well, and and like you said, there's um, it, it's a missed opportunity if you're not getting credit for what you do good. Um, <laughs> so um, well, Mary Kate, um, we've talked a lot about the kind of conceptual issue how this fits. It's been super informative to me. One question I want to ask you is, you know, so this being the case, either be it by investor mandate, by kind of one's own tolerance of the various risks associated with forest ownership, how do you actually actually operationalize these types of priorities or, or principles? Can you just share a few thoughts on on that?
1: Totally. It's a great question. And it's really important because we've gotten this far in a conversation with ESG without mentioning the word greenwashing, which is a really important topic and that folks want to understand today. So to me, the, the benefit of operationally operationalizing ESG well in any business or any investment is that you can prove out the good of what you're doing. And it it kind of future-proofs you against some of those criticisms and at least is um, the on-road to transparency and to engagement about these really important topics. So I'll give you an example of what this looks like for me as a person who does ESG within investment management. So we have an ESG policy. That policy sets out how we operate and what's important to us about ESG. And really importantly, it links the fact that we believe good ESG management and good forest stewardship is naturally aligned with good investment performance and good long-term outcomes for our clients. Um, This is the beauty of sustainable forestry and sustainable ag. Long-term performance depends on good environmental quality, good social performance, and that's where it's closely linked to investment performance as well. So that's at the heart of our ESG policy. That policy then also talks about the ways that we implement that. So we refer to things like using forest certification as a, as a tool, to management system and the foundations through which we're going to operationalize this. So in an investment management context, we want to make sure that we're putting ESG consistently in every step of the investment process. And that starts with pipeline, where we start gathering and looking at potential deals and transactions. Um, The way we'd look at ESG there would be going, you know, what are the big ESG risks? Uh, Is it an environmental threat like a, a pest or fire or storms? Is there a social threat like it's an area that is just, you know, not on board with forestry because they've only seen bad forestry in the past and haven't had good neighbor relationships? Or maybe there's a land tenure question where you're operating. Or is there a governance risk that you're talking about buying into a company that just has poor controls and might be engaging in bits of corruption, which has been, you know, historically a thing that occurs in, in resource sectors, particularly in, you know, certain countries. You want to pick those things up early when you're doing your evaluation of a deal. From there, you want to give that information to your investment committee, right? And say, we identified these risks. This is what we believe we could mitigate. This is what that would look like from an ESG perspective. And this might be the residual risk, like. That's still kind of an area where corruption tends to be a thing in, say, licensing for forestry concessions. So good to know about. That lets the investment committee consider those factors and make a really well-rounded informed decision. Once they say, yay, okay, transaction's completed, you celebrate your deal, you get your plaque, that goes then into asset management, right? So now you own this thing and you need to operate it. For good ESG, this is about setting some targets, some benchmarks, and saying, how are we going to get there? So Let's take that certification again as an example, saying, well, we want to get certified within two years of owning this asset. So that means that we're going to assess the ecologically sensitive ecosystems. We're going to do a a wildlife assessment. We're going to check boundary issues with neighbors, and we're going to set up a management system that shows how we're putting this all together. So those are steps in an ESG process. Now, if you're in one of those impact investments, you might also be layering some of those fun ESG initiatives in, like say You're in an area where the forest sector is kind of declining over time and maybe stagnating and you want to help revitalize that because you need a strong sector to have a thriving business. So you might say, I'm going to engage in some extension with nearby landowners to talk about tree planting on their properties so that we make sure there's enough trees in this area that these mills are going to stay open. So we've always got a market. That's a good win-win social project where you're providing a good to local, say, landowners who want to plant some trees, they will get some income but you're also doing yourself a favor by safeguarding your market in a way. Um, That's a good example of an impact opportunity in operations. But it also extends all the way through to the exit from an investment, where folks are increasingly saying, well, hang on, I owned this thing for 10, 20, 25 years, and I made that forest more productive, healthier. I put all those management systems in that prove it out. We've got great neighbor relationships. Everything's going wonderfully is the next person I sell this to and the next company, are they going to do the same thing? So folks are starting to think about what we'd call maybe the durability or the impact lock um, and making sure that impact perpetuates. Um, There's some mechanisms to do that both structurally. And I would say, you know, there's, there's lawyers thinking heavily about those types of things, but there's also just pure benefits of once you get a forest or farm operating at its peak and responsibly, That's really self-perpetuating in many ways. Hopefully, the market's rewarding it because you've got good relationships with mills who may want your certified product, or that's opening doors to more potential customers because you can offer a certified product. And that can be really self-perpetuating. So we think about those types of things even when selling a property. Can those environmental goods we've been stewarding for 20 years be continued? Let's at least tell the new buyer about them and what's important about managing them. Um, So that's kind of an end-to-end investment process way of doing it. Um, Another thing just to add in here that is helpful for thinking about ESG and operational context is it's just about consistency. And this comes to that greenwashing again. You don't want to be cherry picking. So you don't want to be going, well, gee, in Oregon, I care about water because salmon are there, um, but in Atlanta, I'm just going to, or in Georgia, I'm just going to care about Um, you know, roadside buffers and, you know, the amenity value from the highway. You know, that would be kind of a little bit flitting from thing to thing. Having a consistent ESG lens is saying what's material to the type of investments we make. And that can be what's financially material, what makes a difference to the bottom line, particularly if there was a risk there and you could have periodic shocks to your revenue. But it also matters to what's uh, material to stakeholders. That includes clients, the investors, that includes employees, includes the workers that are managing the forest on the ground. It includes the contractors who come and harvest trees, and it includes the communities who live near those forests. All of the stakeholders care about something different. And so we take into consideration what matters to stakeholders when we're determining our materiality. That kind of gives us a set of topics that we know we want to manage consistently across our entire portfolio. And making sure that that management is consistent in every step of the business process is really the heart of good, credible ESG
0: yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. I mean, the consistency is one of the criticisms you you hear the most. or I should say inconsistency is one of the criticisms you hear the most and and looking at it holistically um, and having a, a consistent platform. I can see what you're saying. you know that's what makes it really sing true. So, well, Mary Kate, um, I don't know how to thank you. This has been uh, very illuminating for me. and this is a topic where I think you know you might listen to ten of these things or read, 20 articles and, and still might be kind of a mystery, but you've done a great job of demystifying that uh, to a degree today. So uh, I very much appreciate you coming in. Thank you for your time. Uh, and it's been a real pleasure uh, talking with you today.
1: Thanks, Adam. I think you and I could have this conversation 10 times and focus on 10 different things. Forest land use, and ag, are, they're really at the heart of so many pressing challenges and opportunities for the world. Climate change, biodiversity, resource scarcity, and even social inequality, So there's a lot of interesting conversations to be had around the nexus of forest land use and ESG. And I would just encourage people to start talking about them more. Um, I think this is something that's going to be increasingly on the the business agenda. And folks sometimes say ESG is non-financial matters. I think they're future financial matters and really appreciate you having the conversation today.
0: Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Stoll Reeves Deeply Rooted Podcast. To follow along and get additional insights from each episode, visit Stoll.com please also take a moment to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and may not reflect the views of Stoll Reeves LLP. Participation in this podcast by any individual is not an endorsement of any view or opinion expressed. This is not legal advice and the podcast doesn't create a client-attorney relationship.